Mr. Vice-Chancellor, honoured guests, colleagues, students, friends. Inaugural lecturers customarily begin by paying homage to, their previous, to the previous incumbents of their chairs. I take great pleasure in paying tribute to my friend Henry Meyer Harting. Although I studied history as an undergraduate in another place, I read Henry's wonderful book, The Coming of Christianity to Anglo-Saxon England, in preparation for the very first undergraduate essay I ever wrote on the merits of Bede as an historian. Henry thus unknowingly introduced me to the delights of Anglo-Saxon ecclesiastical history. He also suggested the research topic that I pursued in my doctoral thesis on early English monasticism. In his own inaugural lecture, Professor Meyer Harting made reference to important essays by his predecessors, Claude Jenkins on Bede as a theologian, and Stanley Greenslade on pastoral care in the early church. Both of those essays influenced my early research too. Henry also paid further tribute to Jack McManus, whose book Death and the Enlightenment turned out to prove my salvation in my general paper in finals. McManus and Meyer Harting stand out among 20th century holders of this chair as scholars of genuine distinction who made a mark as historians far beyond the narrow sphere of ecclesiastical history. Each used his inaugural to offer the fruits of some recent research. In 1974, McManus reflected on the art of dying in 18th century France and Henry gave a memorable tour de force in 1997, delighting his audience with a survey of perceptions of angels in history. Thanks to the generosity of the Fell Fund, I've just enjoyed two terms research leave, and I did wonder about whether I should tell you about the archive of Anglo-Saxon charters in Bury St Edmunds Abbey in Suffolk, which I've been working on. Now, that would, of course, have been a riveting paper, but I thought I would spare you such an exposition. And instead, I'm going to follow the other possible model for an inaugural lecture. I'm going to try and survey the condition of the discipline that I'm asked to profess and think about its future prospects. I might perhaps observe in passing that I would almost certainly have given a very different lecture on this occasion if I'd done so immediately after I arrived in Oxford from the History Department at Sheffield. There I had only just been promoted to a chair in early medieval history and I had just given an inaugural lecture on being early. Nearly four years of working in the theology faculty here coupled with the experience of fulfilling the liturgical and preaching obligations that go with the other half of my post, my lay canonry in Christchurch Cathedral, these things have both manifestly altered the way that I think and write about the past. Centrally, my lecture will ask how ecclesiastical history distinguishes itself from the rest of the historical discipline what role it has in a modern university, and specifically what its place is within a faculty of theology. Has the purpose or value of having someone appointed in this field changed since my chair was first established? Other universities seem no longer to see its merits. In the past half century, the number of established chairs of ecclesiastical history in Britain has gone down from 10 to 2. Advertising my post in 2006, the theology faculty in Oxford assumed the field to require no explanation. 
But when last year Cambridge finally advertised the long vacant Dixie Chair of Ecclesiastical History, which staffs through the history faculty, they announced a definition of ecclesiastical history that some might find surprising. The further particulars for that post urged the field into a new direction, away from the study of the church as an institution towards the history of the Christian religion, ideally in comparison with other major world religions. The two halves of my lecture, the two halves of the title of my lecture may resonate with different parts of this audience. Historians will have heard the echo in Thinking with Christians of a celebrated book by Stuart Clarke on the idea of witchcraft in early modern Europe called Thinking with Demons. Clarke challenged the previously pervasive view that early modern beliefs about witchcraft must have been essentially incorrect because empirical observation would have demonstrated their untruth. They referred to no observable reality. The supposed harm done by witches being thus imaginary and based on this empirical mistake, scholars believed they must explain early modern animosity towards witches by something other than conviction. Clark rejected that idea and began his study rather from the proposition that those who wrote about demonology believed in witches. And he went on to show how influential those beliefs became in key areas of early modern intellectual debate, science, history, religion and politics. Key to everything I meant to say this evening is a similar proposition. To write and think meaningfully about the past of the Christian churches and the religious practices of those who adhered to the Christian faith, it is necessary to enter a Christian world view, to think with those Christians. The church historian must work outwards from the premise that the subjects of their study believed the truth claims made by their religion. Church historians do not have themselves to espouse that faith any more than Stuart Clarke had to start believing in demons in order to write about those who believed in witchcraft. But church historians must take faith seriously and not necessarily seek to explain the behaviour of Christians as reducible to other social, political or cultural forces. Yet to do ecclesiastical history, by which I mean to engage in the enterprise of church history in the modern world, presents difficulties that my predecessors in the Victorian era didn't have to face. For we live in, to recall Charles Taylor's recent book of the same title, a secular age. What then does it mean to profess ecclesiastical history in a generation in which church attendance and interest in organised religion are rapidly declining, even if new modes of religious expression outside the churches may seem a bit healthier? In order to explore these questions, I need to return to the origins of this chair and say something about the circumstances that led to its establishment and the simultaneous endowment of a chair in pastoral theology. That discussion will show how central ecclesiastical history was to conceptions of history in the 19th century and how closely the history of the church was intertwined with that of the state. In a second section, I'll look at developments in the discipline of history since the 1950s 
and ask if and how these affected the study of the history of the churches. And finally, I'll look at the future prospects for my discipline and offer a series of, of reflections on possible future paths this subject might take. Three originally quite separate movements for reform lay behind the creation by Act of Parliament in 1842 of two new Regis chairs in Oxford, both attached to canonries at Christchurch. The Ecclesiastical Commission, instigated by Peel in the 1830s, sought to, among other things, to reduce the size of cathedral chapters and to reallocate the endowments of suppressed canonries to the Ecclesiastical Commission. The Dean and Chapter of Christchurch, as soon as they found out about this, protested, petitioning both Houses of Parliament that the suppression of the dignities contemplated by this bill will operate to the discouragement of theological and general learning of which these dignities have not infrequently been the merited reward. And those petitions proved successful. Moving the second reading of the Ecclesiastical Duties and Revenues Bill in April 1840, Lord John Russell accepted that Christ Church Oxford partook both of a cathedral and a collegiate character, but more of the latter than the former. He thus recommended two additional stalls above the more usual four, assigning one to a professorship of ecclesiastical history and the other to a chair of biblical criticism and in June of the same year he could report to Parliament that Her Majesty had signified her gracious intention to found two new chairs in these fields. Now this concession represented a considerable achievement for Christchurch, protecting its valuable endowments, but it met with rather more mixed responses in the university at large. For while the ecclesiastical commissioners were working on the reorganisation of canonries and other ecclesiastical benefices, Oxford was trying to revise the university's statutes and regularise the position of professors who seemed increasingly isolated from mainstream university work. The problem of what to do with professors was particularly acute in subjects like theology, which couldn't be offered in schools. Many professors struggled to find enough pupils willing to attend their classes. A student of Christchurch a censor of the college, a former proctor, Robert Hussey, not, it must be said, known as a remarkable reformer, wrote what would prove to be a particularly well-timed pamphlet to the Vice-Chancellor in 1839. He urged an increase in the size of the professoriate and a regularising of professorial duties, recommending the appointment of men like himself in mid-career, not men of the age of 60 who will be worn out in five years and must be replaced. While all this was happening, independently, an anonymous donor tried in 1837 to create a new chair in liturgy, designed specifically to improve the vocational training of clergy in Oxford. He envisaged that his professor would lecture on the history and rationale of our ritual, tackling how to deliver the different parts of our excellent service with the greatest propriety and best effect, and lecturing also on the style and delivery of discourses from the pulpit. The problem with such a gift lay, of course, in who would hold it. At this rather sensitive moment, at the height of the Oxford movement, feelings ran particularly high, 
and the donor's expressed wish to retain the right to nominate the first professor proved his undoing. His choice fell on a well-known Puseyite, William Palmer of Worcester College, and so the abdominal board rejected the donation. The offer from the Queen in June 1840 of two new Regis chairs, one of ecclesiastical history, the other in biblical criticism, with the attached canonries in Christchurch, met with a different response, and the board agreed that these would be beneficial to the university. Christchurch contrived at the same time to annex another canonry to the Lady Margaret Pro Professorship of Divinity in lieu of the stall that that professor then held in Worcester, as the hebdominal board observed, approving, confirming their approval of this move, this would obviate some serious inconveniences. The legislation further assigned the Archdeaconry of Oxford to a sixth stall, so Christchurch in fact emerged with much of its endowment intact and only lost two prebendaries not attached to any outside office. What the holders of these two new chairs should teach proved rather more controversial. And this brings us to the third movement for reform in the later 1830s, attempts to improve the training of the clergy. In the summer and autumn of 1840, Dean Gaysford of Christchurch and the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Howley, corresponded at length about these appointments. Gaysford wrote first, recalling that a few years before, a project had been entertained for improving the quality of candidates for holy orders through universities. He thought the new professorial chairs would create a great opening for an improved system of theological education. And in Howley, he found an enthusiastic ally. Indeed, the dean wrote back at once to declare that he had previously tried to advance a scheme for the testing of the academic fitness of clergy modelled on that of the Navy, where no one can hold a lieutenant's commission without passing an examination before a regular board and being reported fit. Howley feared that if something of this kind were not done, the establishment of the new professors would be of little use. Both approved the idea of the creation of a chair in church history. As Gaysford argued, the establishment of a professor of ecclesiastical history would, I apprehend, meet with the approbation of all. And the duties such a professor would have to discharge need little or no specification. The designation of the other chair proved rather more difficult. Both felt that the interpretation and exposition of scripture could adequately be handled, handled by the Regis professors of Hebrew and Greek who could take a testament each. In the, end, in the end, a second new chair was designated not in biblical criticism but in pastoral theology. Um, the endowment for biblical criticism was it, it secured in 1843 with the creation of the Dean Island chair. But, but, but even having agreed the subject matter, by the end of 1841, both Regis chairs remained unfilled, and Gaysford and Howley continued to fret at the problem of who would take up these posts. Howley worried whether any persons can be found who are free from suspicions of peculiar notions, clearly thinking about Keeble, Newman and their friends, Howley wanted men who have the discretion and judgment, particularly requisite at a time when the other established professors, by whom he meant Hamden and Pusey, are hardly on amicable terms with each other. 
Mindful of the strength of party feeling in Oxford, Gaysford thought it might be very profitable for the government to fix its choice on professors altogether exempt from suspicion of any bias towards opinions of a questionable nature, and also of learning and talent sufficient to sustain the character of the university and promote the objects we have in view. We can be quite clear what kind of ecclesiastical history they wanted the professor to teach. The sound learning without bias entailed a clear understanding of the history of the Church of England and the intimate relationship between the Protestant Church and the modern state. This was no moment to advance a man likely to make excessive claims for the historicity of the Roman Church in England. Each man had his own nominees. Gaysford tried to get both posts for Christchurch students, but succeeded only in nominating to the Ecclesiastical History Chair Robert Hussey, he who had advocated that increase in the professoriate in 1839. The Christchurch Common Room may remember Hussey as a monument of erudition, but he wasn't, in Colin Matthews' words, an ecclesiastical history to rival the Germans. His, he was a source of information to students, not a writer of histories. In his nomination, Gaysford had Peel's support. The other, only other serious contender, the Tudor historian Brewer, was a Puseyite. But Hussey's was, we must concede, a timid appointment a Protestant high churchman of an old-fashioned and cautious kind. He'd been proctor when Hamden was censured in 1836 and showed some Tractarian sympathies in a publication in 1845. Peel proved to have perhaps surprisingly strong views about the chair of pastoral theology. He very much wanted a parish priest and he wanted to avoid decided opponents of the Puseyites who might add to local dissensions. So he thus nominated the safely mediocre rector of Ross-on-Wye in Herefordshire, Charles Ogilvie, one of the archbishop's former chaplains and a reliably solid Tory. We now remember only one of Hussey's 19th century successors and as an ecclesiastical historian of any distinction, though I might note that three of them came to Oxford from Arnold's Rugby. The first of those, A.P. Stanley, who assumed the chair in 1856, was close to Dean Little, but his theological opinions caused a bit of anxiety. He spoke out in, in favour of Track 90 in 1841. Soon after his appointment, he remarked in a letter that he found chapter contained very explosive elements. So it may not have been with much regret that he accepted the deanery of Westminster two years later. Then Palmerston offered his canonry and Oxford professorship to Walter Waddington Shirley, another rugby pupil. Mandel Crichton, later the first Dixie professor in Cambridge, remembered Shirley as an inspired teacher and indeed said that it was he who had aroused his own interest in ecclesiastical history and the Middle Ages. But Stubbs wrote to Freeman after Shirley's premature death in 1866 that Shirley, as we know, was accidentally a good appointment, but very like an accident altogether. In 1866, when he wrote that letter, William Stubbs, a former servitor at Christchurch, had just been elected to the Regis Chair of Modern History, but had yet to deliver his inaugural lecture. Stubbs is perhaps the greatest of the potential holders of this chair never to have held it. 
When he wrote to Freeman on Shirley's death, he made it quite clear that he wanted to do so. He wanted to go back to Christchurch, but he did worry that he might not be nominated because the character of the chair has hitherto been rather divinity than history. Darby delegated responsibility for making the decision largely to his Secretary of State for the Colonies, Twitters Carnarvon, the fourth Earl, then High Steward of Oxford University, so closely in touch with Oxford opinion. Carnarvon urged on Derby the merits of H.L. Mansell, then Waynefleet reader of moral and metaphysical philosophy. He wrote, Mansell is beyond doubt the ablest thinker in Oxford. His studies have not taken him specially in ecclesiastical history, but his ability is such that whatever he undertakes, he will not fail. It may be added, though this does not make an ecclesiastical historian, that he has been now for many years the pillar of the Conservative Party in Oxford. <laughs> Darby thought Mansell would be a negatively good opinion and no more, but he duly put his name forward. Yet even then, Stubbs didn't give up his ambitions. Indeed, when he gave his own inaugural lecture as Professor of Modern History the following year, his peroration might have served as a manifesto for his preferment to the Regis Chair of Ecclesiastical History. There is, he concluded, in the study of living history, a gradual approximation to a consciousness that we are growing into a perception of the workings of the almighty ruler of the world, that we are coming to see not only in his ruling of his church in her spiritual character, but in his overruling of the world, a hand of justice and mercy, a hand of progress and order, a kind and wise disposition being continually that which is good. Not all those who were there on, this, on that occasion enjoyed this religious close. J.R. Green wrote to Freeman soon afterwards, very odd it must have seemed to Oxford as it did even to me, but so sure to Stubbs the old simple lesson that the world's history led up to God and that modern history was but the broadening of his light in Christ. Since for Stubbs, the study of ecclesiastical history lay at the heart of all historical endeavour, the Regis Chair of Ecclesiastical History, with its annexed canonry, remained the post to which he most aspired. And in that ambition, I think it not unlikely that the relative value of the two posts was relevant to a man who had no private means. His chair in modern history brought him an annual income of £650. A Christchurch canonry in the 1860s was worth £1,500. Thus, in 1868, when Mansell went to the deanery of St Paul's, Stubb wrote to Longley, Archbishop of Canterbury, to ask for his help in securing Mansell's vacant chair. Longley tried to advance Stubbs's case, but Disraeli recommended William Bright, the third product of rugby, to hold this chair. Bright held the post till 1901 and made perhaps a more substantial contribution to the discipline than his predecessors, publishing a number of collections of essays on the early church and the church fathers, and of course we remember him also as a hymnodist. To Victorian minds, the study of history and the study of ecclesiastical history amounted in essence to the same endeavour. Mandel Crichton, in his inaugural lecture, asserted unambiguously, one point cannot be stated too clearly. Science knows no difference of methods, 
and ecclesiastical history must be pursued in exactly the same way and with exactly the same spirit as any other branch of history. The aim of the investigator is simply the discovery of truth. He admired the historical turn taken by theology late in the 19th century, but saw no need for church history to turn theological. He did, however, rather deplore contemporary restricted views of the nature of church history um, and the failure of English church historians to take the Roman church seriously after the Reformation. He said he intended to work on a wider period to, to kindle a greater interest in the nature and influence of ecclesiastical organisation as a factor in European civilisation. Because till the end of the 17th century, he wrote, ecclesiastical history is the surest guide to the comprehension of European history as a whole. In a later lecture in 1887, he argued that ecclesiastical history cannot be studied safely on purely ecclesiastical lines. The history of the church cannot at any time be severed from the history of the nation, nor can ecclesiastical questions be considered apart from the background of the national life in which they are inextricably woven. His successor, G.M. Gwokin, agreed, ecclesiastical history is simply the spiritual side of universal history. For all these men, the study of church history did much more than help its students understand present-day Christian churches or provide time depth to current doctrinal or ecclesiological controversies. Rather, at least in Britain, church history explained the origins and the workings of the Protestant state. It's not perhaps surprising that so many prominent church historians were experts in the medieval church, when the history of the medieval church occupied such a central place in the narrative of the making of the state. We should perhaps remember also that all these men I've been talking about so far were clergymen, in Britain and, of course, elsewhere in Europe, church history was written from the inside, usually from specifically confessional perspectives. The most visible change in ecclesiastical history since its late 19th century glory is thus its increasing laicisation, even though there remain, of course, and there are present in this room, prominent and significant historians of the church in monastic orders and among ordained ministers. To explore how different ecclesiastical history is now from the 1840s when my chair was established, we need to consider it against the background of the shifts made in the wider discipline of history over the second half of the 20th century. Up to the middle years of the 20th century, church history defined itself essentially as a form of institutional history. Different from other disciplines within theological studies, such as the history of doctrine, historical theology, the history of theology, the history of liturgy, and a specific strand within historical studies by concerning itself with the institutions of the Christian church or churches. So proper subjects for church historians to explore included the papacy and papal government, monastic orders and individual monastic houses, bishops, priests and ministers, conventicles, synods and church councils, the pitched battles of ecclesiastical history, as A.P. Stanley described them. My predecessor, Claude Jenkins, not perhaps a prolific writer of church history, supervised one B-lit thesis on the Diocese of Flandaff and the effects of the Reformation there, and another on the administrative machinery of the Archbishop of Canterbury. When A.H. 
Thompson gave his Ford lectures in Oxford in 1932, he talked about the English clergy and their organisation in the later Middle Ages. Christopher Cheney's thoughts were on English church government from Beckett to Langton. So the tasks on which a new graduate student might expect to be set were well established and clearly understood. Peter Brown tells a lovely story of his interview as a potential graduate student in the mid-1950s in Oxford by the then Regis Professor of Modern History at VH Galbraith. Galbraith's advice, he reports, was brusque and to the point. Vigorously poking the coal fire in his rooms in Oriel, he barely looked up at me. Brown, he said, so you wish to do ecclesiastical history? Have you got a bishop? Everyone must have a bishop, you know. Go and read his register. And of course, Peter Brown got himself a bishop. But what he did with Augustine was perhaps not quite what Galbraith might have anticipated. So church history, as formally practiced and understood, involved less the story of ideas, but rather the narrative of the development of the organization, the body of Christ, its growth, leadership, and conflicts. One of its strongest elements lay in its diachronic coherence, the possibilities it offered for cross-temporal comparison. In England, as we've seen, that narrative was closely intermeshed with a story about the creation of the Protestant nation. But the evolution in historical method and the epistemological shifts of the last 50 years have, I think, dented the confidence with which church history was once professed. While it's possible to identify significant developments in ecclesiastical history in the first half of the century, especially once the field began to move away from the constrictions imposed by purely confessional approaches, it faced both greater opportunities for evolution as the wider discipline of history itself started to change from the late 1950s onwards, but it also faced potentially much greater problems. The declining role of the church and of other forms of organised religion in Britain and elsewhere in the West across this period constitutes one element that helps to inform and a key context by which to explain both medical, methodological and disciplinary changes. At first, moves in history towards the social, increased interest in studying history from below, looking not at kings, bishops and nobles, but at people of lesser status, women as well as man, and the new availability of sources and tools with which to do so in new critical editions, at first these things played readily into the hands of a new generation of church historians. Quantification and developing statistical method opened new routes into considering the economy of the church, as for example in Christopher Hill's Economic Problems of the Church, or um, Ian Hitler Kershaw's first book on Bolton Priory. Um, one might mention also Alan D. Gilbert's study of religion and society in industrial England, which attempted a statistical analysis of the rise of nonconformity. Quite how far one could hope to get in testing the religious enthusiasms of past populations by counting, measuring, or weighing evidence of their participation in religious life, for example, through analysis of the quantities of wax candles offered to churches or the numbers of new members who joined religious com commun communities over a given period, is a bit unclear. Various analyst efforts in this sphere were less than successful. Other church historians found new routes into the exploration of religious behaviour in the localities and from the perspective of the laity. 
Archbishop William Temple's decision to open diocesan registers to historical inquiry and the relocation of those materials from ecclesiastical archives to newly established county record offices provided plenteous material. Local studies in different periods of ecclesiastical and secular history thus abounded in the 1960s and 1970s, and many of today's leading church historians began their careers with such pro projects. Patrick Collinson encompassed a number of localities in his survey of, of the Elizabethan Puritan movement. Christopher Haig wrote on the Reformation in Lancashire. Bill Shields did Puritans in the Diocese of Peterborough. Judith Maltby, Conformity in Cheshire and Lincoln. Dermot McCulloch didn't work exclusively on the church, but his was nonetheless a local study on county politics in Elizabethan Suffolk. And we can see the same move towards the local in studies of nonconformity, first in histories of individual nonconformist groups, such as Gordon Rupp's History of Methodism, or Clyde Binfield's work on congregationalists, and latterly the more wide-ranging work of David Bebbington on evangelicalism, but nonetheless, one here too discerns a tendency towards localism. Relevant, of course, to changing intellectual cult currents in history were various shifts in contemporary religious culture. The churches began to articulate new attitudes towards the laity in the aftermath of the Second Vatican Council. All denominations started to encourage the full, conscious and active participation in the liturgy of Christian people, and that may have helped to inspire interest in lay devotion in earlier eras. Similarly, contemporary church debates about the participation of women in ordained ministry found reflection in historical inquiry into the roles taken by women in the early church and in later periods. I realise in retrospect that my work in the 1990s on the significance of women in Anglo-Saxon monasticism wasn't unrelated to my engagement in debates about the place of women in the Church of England. But at the same time, in society at large, religion, or at least church attendance, declined sharply. As Simon Green has recently shown, this represented no new development, but one traceable back to the 1920s. Further, Frank Prohaska's work illustrates how governmental reforms in the provision of education and welfare in the 1940s removed from the churches much of their role in social, educational and charitable provision, thus undermining the associational citizenship that went with church membership. In this secular or at least desacralized environment, Historians were more likely to treat religious belief as one among many social or political phenomena, not necessarily one that needed handling with particular care. Paralleling the focus on the local, and especially the laity in the localities, we can see a growing interest among historians in the 1970s and beyond in those who were outside the orthodox religious mainstream and more generally in popular piety, lived religion, as opposed to the practices of elites, or indeed of the workings of ecclesiastical institutions. Popular religion was thus, as John Van Engen has argued, imagined and presented as an autonomous religious outlook, ancient in origin and belonging to the people, a phenomenon which could be explored as a set of indigenous sacred practices, overtly or covertly resistant to the Christianizing forces of the elite. 
Van Engen thinks it may have owed something to Gramscian visions of resistance from below, but it profitably opened up new ways of thinking about superstition and, above all, about heresy. Freed from the confessional perspectives that had formerly dominated the study of heresy, heresy represented an ideal lens through which to explore manifestations of popular religious sentiment and fervour. Now heresy could become, as it did perhaps most powerfully in Montaigneux, just another way of expressing the overlapping beliefs and practices of medieval peasant life. As Le Guay-Ladigui put it in Montaigneux, the sacred is only the social. And R.I. Moore, at a similar time, developed a Durkheimian reading of the church's response to heresy and other forms of deviance, which he classically articulated in his The Formation of a Persecuting Society. After the social turn, anthropology has perhaps had the greatest measurable impact on church history and the wider study of religion over the last five decades. In a classic article on the Balinese cockfight, Clifford Goetz offers a methodology for the analysis of culture as a signifying system, showing how a dense web of symbols and meanings can be unraveled and decoded to discover and give meaning to complex cultural systems, as well as to individuals' expressions and actions. Influenced by Goetz and by the work of, French, of the French Annales School, itself drawing on Durkheim, Mauss, and later Lévi-Strauss, as well as an increasing interest in mortality, a school of historians emerged who looked not at the church and its institutions, but at religion as a social and cultural phenomenon. By studying religion comparatively with close reference to folklore, they found it possible to analyze a popular oral and customary religious culture quite different from the clerical and bookish expressions of formalized institutional Christianity which used to be the preserve of church historians. So Keith Thomas's Religion and the Decline of Magic used anthropological techniques to bring light to manifestations of popular religion, reflecting widespread belief in magic and popular superstition both before and after the Reformation, and drawing a distinction between elite and popular cultures with widely divergent religious views. For medievalists, opening up hagiography, accounts of the lives of saints, and miracle stories to new modes of inquiry, the popular and the cultural became evident. One might think of Jean-Claude Schmidt's study of the cult of St. Ganifor in the Holy Greyhound, Le Goff's work on purgatory through the medieval imaginary, Miri Rubin's study of the Eucharist in Corpus Christi, using anthropological techniques to explore ritual behavior. Not everyone waded into these waters enthusiastically. John Boss's inaugural lecture at the University of York, later published in Past and Present, Some Elementary Forms of Durkheim, offered a sophisticated and linguistically turned critique of the Durkheimian proposition on which so much of this anthropologically inspired history has turned, that the object of religion is society. Amid all these forces, the move to the local, to the popular, to the superstitious or frankly deviant, church history at first continued to thrive because nothing in these methodological shifts to look at history from below or through sociological or anthropological lenses threatened the basis on which all ecclesiastical history must rest, the inspired narrative of the origins and developments of the churches since the days of Christ. 
But in the late 1970s and 1980s, something happened that would profoundly disrupt the securities on which ecclesiastical history has always rested. And that, of course, was the epistemological shift now loosely described as postmodernism. Most succinctly defined as a disbelief in meta or grand narratives, postmodernism argues not against the notion that stories can be told, but against the confident understanding that one can construct overarching narratives of grand themes, the rise of a nation, the history of liberty, the history of Christianity. Rather, postmodernism argues that there must be plural narratives, multiple truths. There is no single authorised version. There are many discourses about the past. All branches of history found the postmodern challenge to the availability of a true past that their careful, trained, disciplined investigation could uncover painful and difficult to reconcile. Marxist historiography, which also depends on a different grand narrative, has struggled particularly. But to argue that there is no past there to recover, a corollary of relativizing epistemological claims, challenges most profoundly the foundations on which ecclesiastical history has always rested and threatens to undermine the endeavor itself. Ecclesiastical historians responded to these challenges in a variety of ways. They turned to literacy to explore modes of religious discourse. They redefined the place of women in religious culture and used gender as a tool to analyze masculinity too. They thought about the body and asceticism images, the ordering and use of ritual space, the performance of sacred rituals. In this ever more culturally turned understanding of the nature of historical inquiry, church history seems to me to have lost a good deal of what once made it distinctive. It's allowed itself to be subsumed either into cultural studies in which religious behavior has less to do with the sacred than apparently with the construction of identity, or it has become part of the wider and extremely vibrant branch of the study of religion. Indeed, instead of studying the church, historians are increasingly looking at Christianity in comparative focus beside other world religions. Indeed, they started to talk not about Christianity, but about Christianities. Now, in some spheres, church historians haven't just accepted this change of direction, they've affirmed their desire to redefine their field. The Dutch Journal for Church History reinvented itself in 2006. It shifted from Dutch to English language publication and renamed itself. It was the, the, the Netherlands um, Journal for Church History. It becomes Church History and Religious Culture. The Journal of the American Society for Church History also subtly moved away from the terms in which it had defined its objects when it founded Church History in 1932. In 1938, it added to its title, Church History, a subtitle, Studies in Christianity and Culture. And it said it had a new editorial strategy, seeking to look not narrowly at the history of the church, but rather to consider the intersection between Christianity and other faiths. It self-consciously expressed a desire to draw on a wider range of historical approaches, including critical theory and the methods of the social sciences, as well as more traditional modes of archival research and interpretation. In the year 2000, the journal organized a conference to look at present trends in church history and published the papers in a special issue. 
All the speakers raised serious methodological concerns about the state of church history in an increasingly secularised world, and indeed in a global environment in which Christianity plays substantially different roles in the northern and southern hemispheres. This is clearly the background against which we should understand Cambridge's redefinition of the subject the Dixie Professor of Ecclesiastical History should profess, and their decision to appoint to that chair an historian of the social context of relations between African traditional religion and Christianity. Beset by these conflicting cross-currents, where should ecclesiastical history go? Change, I know, has never been the Oxford way. Our own Dermot McCulloch now edits the leading British journal in this field, the Journal of Ecclesiastical History, founded in 1950. He and his editors have not thought it necessary to adopt a new name for their journal, nor indeed do they offer any reflections on the direction of the discipline at the moment of their 50th anniversary, which coincided with the millennium. McCulloch himself recently produced a highly acclaimed book, A History of Christianity, The First 3,000 Years, which offers a magisterial survey of Christian history. Although his title may imply a shift towards the study of religion, and in places he talks overtly about Christianity as not a single monolithic faith, in method his book actually owes much to his training in Cambridge with Geoffrey Elton. McCulloch does not analyse belief systems as manifested in ritual or collective or individual Christian behaviour. He doesn't, in fact, have a great deal to say about the beliefs and actions of lay Christian believers, although he devotes a good deal of attention to the history of theology. Centrally, his is a history of the key figures and institutions of organised churches. It's a book about popes, bishops, pastors and preachers. It's about creeds and councils, theologians and theological controversy. He explores the relationship between shifts in theological understanding and the evolution of organised churches. And he looks overwhelmingly at the relationships between churches and secular and political military authority. This is church history, in other words, as traditionally understood, although accomplished on a vast and far from conventional scale, and with a mastery of a range of material and a geographical scope that few could equal. Its very success as a well-received television series, as well as a book, shows very powerfully how a church historian can still tell a narrative of the evolution of the churches across time. But others have followed different methodological paths. The turn to the social, which so dominated ecclesiastical history in the 1970s, appears now much reduced, indeed to the extent, as Hugh MacLeod and Simon Green have argued, that the social history of religion seems to have less and less to do with ecclesiastical and intellectual history. In its place, it's the cultural history of religion that appears to dominate the current historiography. Contributing the religion essay to a recent volume called A Concise Companion to History, Mary Rubin argues for the value of an anthropologically informed study of Christianity. She asserts that the historian should search for the inner logic to be found inside each religious culture. 
and argues that one should trace that logic through the narratives and rituals enacted collectively by members of that society, searching for explanation and meaning in all areas of their lives. In her view, faith is no longer a prerequisite for the effective and illuminating study of the history of religion. Indeed, she seems positively to think disbelief an advantage. She writes, it is only when religion is understood as clusters of ideas and practices expressed and embedded with material objects, lived as stimuli to the senses, prompting memory and securing identity, that historians will be able to contribute to the understanding and interpretation of religion throughout the world. Thus, historians should not, in her opinion, see religion as reflecting temporal avenues to the divine, nor as expressions of sanctity within the mundane world. Rather, they are cultural forms constitutive of the identities of individuals and groups. Now, it's, of course, clear, and Rubin illustrates her essay with abundant examples, that this new cultural study of religion has shed new light on formerly neglected areas of the history of Christianity. I'd follow her also in accepting the enormous benefits that have flowed from the move away from confessional histories that defend particular sectarian corners. Where I struggle is in her dogmatic assertion that disbelief is a positive advantage. For although this focus on ritual and ritual agents, on the spaces, sounds, smells, rhythms and dramas of performed religious acts can reveal much, it can also readily descend into Durkheimian reductionalism and functionalism. When it does, it becomes potentially as misleading and as frankly erroneous as the confessional interpretation it eschews. I am, and I must stress this, I am emphatically not saying you have to be a believer to write meaningfully about Christianity. But I do feel very strongly that to write about any religion, it's necessary, indeed essential, to take that religion seriously, to engage directly with the intrinsic nation of the belief systems which its adherents espoused, and thus to explore what those beliefs meant to their practitioners. You see where I get my title, the parallels here with Stuart Clarke's arguments about the need to take demonology seriously are obvious. It is not the purpose of ecclesiastical history or the study of any other religion to formulate 21st century social theory, still less to use anthropo anthropology to explain away confessional ecclesiastical history in such a way as to make the study of religion a legitimate aspect of our own present. We do not use, should not use, ecclesiastical history to support current notions of gender, identity, liberal humanism, secularization, or globalization. But nor, of course, can the writing of church history to defend a particular confessional position any longer really be defended. Is there a third path that ecclesiastical history could follow? It might take the religious turn for which scholars have started to argue in intellectual history, in the history of modern Germany, and especially in early modern English literary studies. One of the theology faculty's postdoctoral scholars, Sarah Apatray, has located her work on women, feminism, and religion in early Enlightenment England 
in the framework of this religious turn. She urges the need for a fresh engagement with the mysterious transcendent aspects of religious commitment and thought in order to put religion at the centre of intellectual history. Secularisation has, of course, been the dominant paradigm for understanding the religious history of modern Europe for some time, as Charles Taylor argues in A Secular Age, because of a series of largely unrecognised assumptions that religion must decline because it is false, because it is increasingly irrelevant, and because religion is based on authority. Just as in the study of medieval and early modern religion, the study of religious history in the modern era has tended to analyse religious life in ways that the participants in religion might find almost unrecognisable. The secularisation thesis is of course open to challenge. We need much more nuanced readings of the relationship between the unquestionable decline in church attendance on the one hand and continuing public interest in and espousal of other articulations of religious and spiritual expression on the other hand. Linda Woodhead opened up some new avenues for such inquiry in her wild lectures last term on the changing relations between religion, state and law. A move consciously to take the study of religion and of Christianity and the church specifically out of the shadow of the secularisation theory into new light as shown, for example, in the recent collection of essays edited by Jane Garnett and others, Redefining Christian Britain, offers another fruitful way forward, especially if, as in recent books by Garnett's co-editors, Matthew Grimley and William White, that study is integrated with intellectual history and draws also on ecclesiastical <coughs> sources. It seems to me that ecclesiastical history has lost its way over the last half century, and this cannot be unrelated to the church's own loss of direction. Bishops and clergy no longer occupy the central position in our public and intellectual life that they did in the 19th century. The church does not play the same role in the life of the nation, and new forms of religious expression manifest in our society don't necessarily lend themselves to the creation of new modes of church history. In rushing to hitch ourselves to the latest fads in historical method, we seem to me to have lost sight of the fundamentals of church history and the elements that made it distinctive, whether practised in a theology or a history faculty. Above all, church history must cleave to its grand narrative about its inspired origins and its continuous, if complicated, development since apostolic times. Its practitioners need to reject reductionist explanations and the relentless secularism which has dominated their studies over the last 20 to 30 years. Church historians need to reclaim a landscape in which faith matters. Now, in a theology faculty, such an argument need not be contentious, but we should not lose sight of why we include ecclesiastical history in our curriculum, why, therefore, my chair was established, and why, a generation after it was, theology was made a final honours school. The university and the crown created this chair, as well as that in pastoral theology, in order to improve the education of those destined for Christian ministry. 
Ignorance of and an inability to engage with an informed understanding of the church's past remains as dangerous for today's clergy as for those of the mid-19th century. Yet while ministerial training remains an important part of my faculty's endeavours, it's by no means our sole educational function. And in many ways, my arguments apply even more to those taught church history in theology and in history who intend to pursue secular careers. Because the history of the churches and the history of theology penetrate all areas of historical inquiry, ignorance of the significant role of the churches in the past or an acquaintance only with an ecclesiastical history purged of its spirituality diminishes all educated members of a civilised society. Strong arguments support the continuation of this chair in Oxford, which presents particular advantages for the study of ecclesiastical history. My predecessor, A.P. Stanley, wrote in 1857, Oxford's peculiar mixture of various characters and callings, students and studies, invites us to that fusion of lay and clerical, of modern and ancient, of common and sacred, which is so vital to a full understanding of our subject, yet which would be so easily lost in institutions more purely theological, more strictly professional. For whatever purpose it is studied, ecclesiastical history must be practised on the basis of an understanding and tolerance of the belief claims of its adherents, not against predetermined frameworks that dismiss those claims at the outset. Substantial benefit derives from its study over long periods. Much of the force of McCulloch's history of Christianity lies in its temporal range. Ecclesiastical history should not seek to identify current political or cultural fashions and find them in the past. It should not use past eras to legitimate our particular presence and our current preoccupations. Rather, the aim of church history, and thus my aim as its professor, should be to restore to past Christian generations their present and to recognise the subjects of our inquiries as thoughtful, sentient, often genuinely spiritual people, not as the victims of an, of an oppressive alien ideology. David Knowles, who held the medieval, not the Dixie chair in Cambridge, wrote to a friend in 1964, remarking on how his teaching and writing had changed as a result of his move to Cambridge. I felt that having arrived most unexpectedly in a chair, and being a Catholic priest, it was right to appeal to as wide an audience as possible, not with apologetics, but with history in which Christianity was taken for granted as true. From my own lay perspective, I would articulate that view only in my capacity as a canon when preaching in Christchurch Cathedral. But I do aspire to write and teach a history of Christianity in which I take it for granted that those whose past I study, unless they provide direct evidence to the contrary, accepted their faith as true. Ecclesiastical history thus conceived has as much relevance in a modern university as it did in the 1840s. For if we do not teach an ecclesiastical past, how can we hope to have an ecclesial present? We have already observed a turn to religion in other areas of historiography. 
The time is ripe, Mr Vice-Chancellor, for ecclesiastical history to take a religious turn. Thank you very much.